Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu business. The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. The alleged increasing inequality of wealth in America is one of the most politically contentious issues of the day. Perhaps the main policy America uses to counter inequality is the federal income tax, which is designed to be progressive. According to one economic narrative, tax cuts in the 1980s under President Reagan reduced the pro progressivity of the income tax, allowing increases in inequality over the past 35 years. What exactly is the progressivity of a tax and how do economists measure tax progressivity? And what do measures of progressivity tell us has happened to the, over the decades with the federal taxes? Joining me on eConversations today is an economist who has contributed significantly to, the, to this debate, Dr. Tim Matthews. Dr. Matthews is a professor of economics at Kennesaw State University in Georgia and he's also the director of the Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity there. Dr. Matthews studied economics at Wilkes University in Pennsylvania and then earned a master's degree from the University of Virginia and then finally a PhD in economics from Stony Brook University in New York. Prior to coming to Kennesaw, Dr. Matthews taught at Northridge State in California. In his published research, Dr. Matthews has contributed his, his own measure of tax progressivity and provided historical calculations of, of six different measures of progressivity going back to 1929. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, welcome to eConversations, Tim. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, I've already used this term, uh, progressivity, and that's an, a term uh, economists and, and maybe hopefully some of our students are, are familiar with. But uh, First, let's talk about what it means for a tax to be progressive versus regressive versus uh, proportional. Yeah, um, so we can define those terms by looking at um, average tax rate mm -hmm. and seeing how the average tax rate behaves or changes in value as we go up the income scale. So average tax rate typically would be defined as the total dollar amount paid in taxes divided by a taxpayer's income. So if we have someone that earns $100,000 a year in income and has to pay $12,000 in taxes, their average tax rate is 12%. Okay. Um, if someone that's making you know, 50,000 in income um, only has to pay 4,000 in taxes, their average tax rate is 8%. So in that example, we see that the average tax rate for those two observations at least went from 8% for the 50,000 income earner up to 12% for the 100,000 income earner a progressive tax is generally one where that average tax rate value gets higher as we go up the income scale. So not only do the higher income earners pay a greater dollar amount in taxes, but they actually pay a greater percentage of income uh, of their income in taxes. A proportional tax is one where the percentage paid in 
taxes stays constant over all income levels. So okay. a very simple you know, mathematical example, if we had a truly flat tax with no exemptions and deductions, where everybody had to pay 10% of their income in taxes, mm -hmm. that person makes 50,000 a year would pay 5,000, the person who makes 100,000 a year would pay 10,000 in taxes, they're each paying 10%. Okay. Um, regressive is when the percentage paid gets lower as we have you know, as, as we go to higher income levels. Keep in mind, even for regressive taxes, the dollars paid in taxes could be higher. It's right. the percentage that gets smaller. So just to make up two numbers, you know, if someone with 50,000 of income has to pay 5,000 in taxes, that's 10%. If someone with 100,000 of income pays 8,000 in, in, in taxes, that's 8%, you know, it's 2% less, mm -hmm. right? So it's regressive, but it's $3,000 more. Okay. So the dollar amount went up, even though the percentage went down. Thankfully, there's a kind of a mathematical trick that we can use to be able to see whether a tax is very likely going to be progressive, proportional, or regressive. And it's due to the mathematical relationship between marginal and average, and more precisely, marginal tax rate and average tax rate. Mm -hmm. For those familiar with the you know, federal income tax in the US, or even most of the state income taxes, you'll be aware that there are different tax brackets, correct? Yes. Different ranges of income that are subject to a particular marginal rate. And there's a general mathematical relation between marginal and average that I think most people know, even if they don't know that they know it. Right. And what I'm getting at here is typically as usually defined, an average will go up if and only if the current marginal is above the previous average. And to see what I mean by that, um, you know, the, the example I always give to students very often is, you know, hey, a, a lot of sports statistics. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. And in the first game this season, the other night, uh, Zeke Elliott ran for 52 yards, right? So that was his first game of the season. Clearly his average after the first game is 52 yards rushing. Everybody that follows sports or football knows what he needs to do in the next game to bring his average up, right? Rush. He needs to run for more than 52 yards. Yeah. And basically that's the relationship between a marginal and an average. To pull the average up, the next marginal needs to be higher than the previous average. Mm -hmm. And it's an if and only if. If the next marginal is below that current average, the average gets pulled down. Applying this to you know, tax brackets, if we have a tax structure where the marginal tax rate is increasing, that's going to give us a progressive tax structure. And that's right. exactly what the US federal income tax has you know, once you get to the point where you earn enough income to actually have to start paying taxes, you pay on the margin 10% of your you know, next dollar earned in taxes for a while. Then it goes up to 15%. Then it goes up to a higher marginal rate, higher marginal rate, and so forth. Up to, I think, presently the highest marginal rate is in the, the high 30s, maybe like a 37% or 39. I think 37% is the, the current highest marginal. But it's kind of like a staircase up right. of the marginal rates as we go up the tax brackets. Consequently, that's going to give us you know, overall taxpayers a progressive tax rate structure so that higher income earners not only pay more dollars in taxes, but they pay a greater percentage of their income in taxes. Okay, well, great. And so when we start to think about, like, you know, when economists talk about in, in public finance uh, uh, taxation, um, 
there are two, broadly speaking, there are two different ways we could think about uh, how it is that, that, that people should be paying for government. These principles are what we call ability to pay and then uh, you know, uh, the benefit principle of taxes. So if you could, tell us a, a little bit about these and then what does this, uh, you know, what do sort of both of them sort of tell us about the tax structure? Right. So the one that I would say is actually more directly relevant to the discussion of progressivity would be the ability to pay. Mm -hmm. uh, so let me start with the benefits principle and just get at what that is. The benefits principle loosely says you know, the people that should pay the taxes to fund a particular government good or service should be the ones that get the benefit from the government services provided. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, you know, hey, the people that should pay taxes to fund you know, highway and road, you know, construction and maintenance, it seems in some sense fair to have it that that tax burden goes on or is borne by, you know, the people who use the roads, the people right. that drive around the most, right? So mm -hmm. if we have a you know, per unit tax on gasoline, that has it that since most gasoline that people buy at a gas station is used to, you know, fuel their car, we end up having that, you know, from that tax on gasoline, it's kind of in line with that benefits principle, yeah. right? The more you gas you buy, you know, the more you drive, the more gas you buy, the more you're going to pay in the you know, federal or state excise taxes on gasoline. So we're tying, you know, that expense, that government expense, you know, to the revenue in terms of, you know, okay, the people paying the revenue are the ones getting the benefit. Um, that makes sense for some government programs. To me, it doesn't make sense for others, right? right? And, uh, a lot of like income redistribution, it would be kind of, you know, nonsensical to say, well, the people that should fund our welfare programs are the welfare recipients. No, we have those programs in place to help out low-income households. Right. It wouldn't make any sense whatsoever to say those are the people we should tax to fund the program, right? You know, it would be nonsensical to say, let's impose taxes on low-income households to fund food stamps, right? Mm -hmm. So the benefits principle doesn't always apply. Um, the ability to pay principle is exactly, you know, thankfully these are, are terms that are very descriptive. Yeah. Uh, the ability to pay principle says the tax burden that people have you know, should be in line with their ability to pay, the ability to bear the burden of the tax. And there are kind of two uh, related notions where we can kind of check to see if that ability principle, ability to pay principle is violated or not. And these are you know, horizontal equity and vertical equity. Mm -hmm. And basically the notion of you know, horizontal equity says, if we take two tax paying units that have equal ability to pay, they should have you know, equal tax burdens. Right. Whereas the notion of vertical equity says in its loosest sense, two tax, if we take two different tax paying units with different abilities to pay, the one with the greater ability to pay shouldn't have a lower tax burden. Mm -hmm. Or if we want to be a little more forceful about it, the one with the higher ability to pay should have a higher tax burden. Right. That sounds you know, fairly reasonable and hey, who's going to object to that? To that? But where we then run into you know, difficulties with a lot of, you know, as is the case with a lot of discussions, is when we try to be more precise with what we mean. Right. You know, what does ability to pay mean? Mm -hmm. What does tax burden mean? A standard way to approach ability to pay would be, hey, income. Right. Income would seem to be if we're you know, imposing taxes on someone this year, you know, your income this year would seem to be a pretty good reflection of your ability to pay what's tax burden right um because then uh, the the notion of your know, vertical equity or sorry horizontal equity would say hey two households or two taxpayers with equal incomes should have equal tax burdens right 
and I, I guess I slipped there, right? I said, you know, taxpayer or household, right? What level of unit should we be looking at? Should we right. be looking at, you know, Dan Sutter as an individual or Dan Sutter's household? Right. Um, you know, and those are two different, you know, units. And if people, you know, disagree on which unit we should be looking at, they might come back with different answers as to what's appropriate for these notions of, you know, equity, you know, horizontal versus vertical. How should we measure tax burden? Should tax burden be measured in dollars paid in taxes or percentage of income paid in taxes, right? right? Now this kind of brings us immediately or brings us back now to that whole discussion of you know, progressive, or, regressive, portion, yeah. right? If tax burden is dollars paid in taxes, you know, in that regressive example I used, yeah. where the person with 100,000 income paid 8,000 in taxes and the person with 50,000 income paid 5,000, everybody would agree that $8,000 is more than $5,000, right? Nobody's going to disagree with that. But in percentage terms, it's smaller, right? right? It's 8% versus 10% in terms of your average tax rate. So if I say that tax burden is dollars paid in taxes, and you say that tax burden is percentage of income paid in taxes, you know, we might both agree with the notion of vertical equity. Hey, the household with right. higher income have a higher tax burden. But you might look at that regressive tax and say, well, that violates vertical equity mm -hmm. you know, because the tax rate, the average tax rate for the higher income household is lower. Whereas I look at it and say, well, no, I don't see a violation of vertical equity here. They're paying $3,000 more in taxes. What right. do you mean they're tax burden? You know? yeah. So when we start to be more precise and specific, um, that's where we tend to have more disagreement. Yeah. Broadly, I would say most people would think of average tax rate as a reasonable, probably more reasonable than simply dollars paid, mm -hmm. notion of tax burden. And if we equate, you know, ability, or sorry, if we uh, equate your know, economic capacity to pay the tax with income, and if we equate tax burden to average tax rate, it begins to give us an argument against regressive taxes. Right and even against proportional taxes in favor of you know, some degree of progressive tax, where the you know, average tax rate is higher for higher income groups. But then the big question is, okay, how progressive? Right. What do we even mean by how progressive? Well, you know, how progressive the, the, the taxes should be is one level is what economists call a normative question. It's a, a values question or what should be. What we're going to focus on today is what we would call the more the, the positive uh, question of just how progressive has the uh, the, has our, our uh, federal tax system been, and, and and so this is where we can uh, you know where you've done a lot of research and and can contribute here. And first off, you know if you think about it, you you have a uh, one paper where you looked at six different measures uh, of potential measures uh, of tax progressivity and. Uh, when you break it, so as we start to talk about this, we'll see that four of them sort of jump, uh, lump together in one sort of measure, and then a couple others uh, measure something else. So let's let's start with the the, the first uh, that first group of four different tax measures that are I think what we would all say is economists would all say is they are trying to get at this question of of progressivity and how exactly then do these uh, measures go ahead to measure to give us some kind of quantification of of when uh, you know when taxes are more or less progressive. Right, so a, a progressive tax broadly, again, we defined it now as one where the average tax rate is increasing as we go up the income scale. Um, I think you can kind of see that that puts, in some sense, more of the burden of paying the tax on higher income right. earners. 
And you know, in the U.S., we have a you know, progressive federal income tax. Um, all the data that I use in my papers is coming from IRS statistics of income reports, socio-official IRS data. Um, my academic research on this does focus solely on the U.S. federal income tax. So it is not looking at you know, Social Security payroll taxes or you know, federal you know, gasoline taxes or things like that or corporate profit taxes. But the U.S. federal income tax accounts for about 47 percent as of 2020. It's 47 percent of all federal government revenue. So it's close to the majority of federal mm-hmm. dollars are coming from the individual income tax. And it's actually the largest source of federal revenues. The next is social insurance taxes that account for 38 percent collectively. So I am narrowly looking at the U.S. federal income tax. Um, but that's the one that's most relevant for especially workers. Um, a progressive tax puts more of that burden of paying the tax on higher income earners. So looking at IRS statistics of income reports for 2018, the top 1% of taxpayers, or more precisely, the top 1% of you know, people that filed a tax return based on their adjusted gross income, which about 80% of American adults are represented on a filed tax return. So it's most, but not all. The top 1% collectively earn just over 20% of society's adjusted gross income. They've collectively paid, though, over 40% of all federal income tax dollars paid. Mm-hmm. So they're paying a disproportionate share. Right. Um, so the four you know, progressivity measures that you alluded to, um, three of them are ones that were developed previously by other academics, uh, Suits, Kakwani, Strout. Uh, The first paper I wrote on this, actually, I started looking at those three. And actually, as I began to think about this issue, I kind of, without even knowing the literature, came up with what to me seemed like a good, reasonable measure of progressivity over the entire income scale. Mm -hmm. And for those that kind of know some economics, it's constructed very similar to the Lorenz curve and Gini coefficient as the approach taking um, when we measure, which is the standard way to, to measure income inequality. Basically, what we do is conceptually, we, we order all you know, taxpayers from lowest income up to highest and then go up the income scale. And the, the standard Lorenz curve for income inequality kind of plots the relation between, as we go from lowest income to highest, cumulative fraction of income earned for each cumulative fraction of the population. For these you know, progressivity measures, we similarly construct a tax um, concentration curve, mm-hmm. and then kind of look at ratios of different areas in that two-dimensional graph. Mm-hmm. Um, the bottom line is these four different tax progressivity measures can range in value between zero and one, and a bigger value means a tax that's more progressive. Um, the three that were kind of existing before I began to work on this, the one that was most natural to me was actually the measure that Michael Straub came up with, the Straub coefficient of tax progressivity. Um, the fourth measure that I identified in my first paper basically showed that, hey, the way that these three are constructed, there's one here that's missing. <laughs> and you know, so that's the new measure that I introduced. And then, like you said, I, in a lot of my work or in several of my papers, I've computed values of all four of these over time, mm-hmm. um, along with two other or some other measures that don't really gauge progressivity, but more accurately, 
measure the extent to which taxes are altering the, the income distribution right. or redistributing income. Uh, so that's kind of broadly where you know, my, my work is on this area. Now, when we you know, look at it, you know, we look at those measures of, of tax progressivity. You know, fortunately, one thing is that they, they all tend to tell sort of the same, you know, my, my take on it is this, they're telling the same basic story. So it's not like those four measures are all over the place. And, and that's good because even if there are small differences uh, in terms of how you're precisely trying to measure something, if they're all true, you know, moving sort of in the same direction at the same time, that, that's good because it, it, it would really give us a, a good sense that what we're trying to measure that we really can't see directly, but we're measuring through these different proxies. I, it looks like we, we've probably got it pinned down pretty well. And so if you can, let, let's talk about like this, this pattern of, of what, what you've found looking at the progressivity of the taxes uh, over time. Great, great, yeah. And actually, uh, I would agree with you. The, the four that I mentioned, you know, my measure, the suits measure, Kakwani and Straub do kind of tend to paint the same broad picture. Um, I'll focus my discussion on Straub's measure, because actually, honestly, to me, of the four, uh, that's the one that kind of is most natural. Mm -hmm. um, so I actually, in the undergrad textbook that I've written that we use here at KSU, I've updated these you know, computations for Straub's measure. So there I have measures, you know, values of the Straub index, again, using IRS data, basically from 1929 uh, up through 2018 is the time period that I'm looking over. Um, and the big overall trend is that pretty much up through the end of the 1930s and the start of World War II, the value of the Straub coefficient was almost as mathematically high as it possibly could have been. You know, the upper bound on this thing is a value of one. And conceptually, how would we get a, a value of one? Well, if we have you know, all of the tax dollars coming from the single person with the highest income in yeah. society, that is how we would have a value equal to one, okay? If we had a proportional tax, everybody pays you know 5% of their income, the value would be equal to zero, okay? Mm -hmm. So have those extremes in mind. Up until about 1939, the value of the Straub coefficient was like 0.98 or higher. Mm -hmm. So very, 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 very close to one. During World War II is when our income tax went from being you know, a tax on the only the very, very high income earners to a tax on the masses. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, we see the value of the Straub coefficient drop tremendously um, to the point that in the early 40s, it was down to about 0.6. It then gradually declined and continued to decline until about 1969 is the year in which it reached its lowest value of 0.4452. Since then, it's gradually and steadily increased over mm -hmm. time uh, since 1969. So over those last you know, five plus decades, the value has now gotten up to about 0.73 as of 2018. Um, if we use 0.7 as a cutoff, what we see is the value of that Straub coefficient was below 0.7 for every single year between 1942 and 2007. It was above 0.7 both before then and since yeah. then. So the current, you know, the most recent, you know, 2008 through 2018 values, that most current decade that we have data to compute values for, it's not the most progressive taxation we've had in our history. You know, that was pre-World War II. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's clearly much more progressive than it was between 1942 and 2007. Right. 
So in one way to think about it is that since, it's, since the income tax has become a, a broad tax that lots of people pay, uh, income tax is as progressive as it's ever been over, over that period of its history. Just, if you go back to the time when just like a handful of rich Americans paid it, then that, that's, as you said, almost perfect uh, limit, the, the limit of progressivity. But since uh, lots, of, lots of Americans have been paying it, we're, over the last few years, pretty much at the, at the peak of that progressivity. I would agree. I would agree with that assessment. Yes. Yeah. Now, you know, this is a little at, at um, odds with some of the other research and, and most importantly, uh, Thomas Piketty, uh, the, uh, who's, who's written about a lot about inequality and particularly then, uh, you know, written about the role of taxes in uh, looking at inequality, argues that you know, since we had the, the uh, tax reforms of the 1980s, the, the uh, federal income tax has become a lot less progressive, and that that's uh, allowed for uh, an increasing uh, inequality in, in America, particularly for millionaires to like become billionaires because we're not taxing away the, the, the uh, earnings of the, the really high income earners. Um, at some level, this sort of like you know, you're you're seeing uh, you're, you're, the data, the IRS data is giving us a, a somewhat different story. The taxes aren't, uh, you know, the, that that narrative that Piketty uh, constructs is a little misleading. It's um, you know, at least some evidence showing that the uh, taxes are, are more progressive now than they've been in the past. Yeah, and, and some of the differences there. Most of his research and observations. Um, a couple things are different. First, he tends to kind of focus on all federal revenue sources, not just federal income taxes, whereas my research is more narrowly focusing on federal income taxes. But again, it's basically about you know, half of federal right. dollars are coming from the federal income tax. So there could be some differences there. Um, also, he doesn't take, and to me, this is, you know, the mainstream approach is to kind of come up with a you know, single dimensional, you know, one number index that we could look at, which, you know, when all economists look at income inequality. That's a standard approach. Compute the value of the Gini coefficient. Right. Uh, when people look at tax progressivity, the standard approach going back to the 70s when these four indexes first began to do, be developed was try to try to boil it down to a single number. Right. And his co-authors tend to instead make kind of you know, point observations at different points along the income scale and really pay very, very you know, close attention to only the very, very high end of the income scale. So not even just the top 1%, but sometimes now more recently, they're, they're talking about the top 0.1 or the top mm -hmm. 0.01. Um, it's true for anybody that knows your know, history of marginal tax rates in this country, you know, the current highest marginal tax rate, 37%, is a lot lower than it was back in you know, even when Reagan came into office, it was 70%. Right. Um, before the Kennedy tax cuts of the early 60s, it had been 91%. Mm -hmm. And again, that's the marginal rate. That means if you face that tax rate, you earn an extra $100 of income, you get to keep nine bucks after you pay your federal income taxes. Then you have to pay your state income taxes on that nine bucks. Then you have to, you, if you go out to the store and buy something, you have to pay a sales tax, right? right? So there's very small you know, marginal benefit of earning that extra income. But those very, very high marginal rates were not relevant for that many people. Mm -hmm. And if we go back, look at 1963, which is the year when that, the last year when that marginal rate was 91%, um, taxpayers with adjusted gross income uh, over 
you know, to pay that 91%, your adjusted gross income had to be over 400,000. Right. Only 0.01%. So what's that? One out of 10,000 people had adjusted gross income over $200,000. So yeah, the highest marginal rate was 91%, but it was a rate that was not that relevant for most people. Right. Looking further down the income scale, um, only about seven and a half percent of taxpayers faced a tax rate, a marginal rate of above 26%, you know, which is comparable probably to where, you know, my point is, you know, yeah, the highest marginal right. tax rates right. were a lot higher back then, but it's not clear to me by looking at, you know, the data across the income distribution that the typical taxpayer was facing a higher marginal tax rate back then. And, and you also, uh, Back and they had a lot of exemptions, and I think certainly uh, up through the, the 1970s and 1980s, it was very common for uh, businesses to in incur a lot of expenses on behalf of, of their executives as well. So, you know, there, there's a number of different uh, points we could get, get into, but we've pretty much come to the end of our time. So, is there anything like you wanted to sort of add here in, in concluding? Uh, not really that I can think of, other than, you know, yeah, you touched on a great point there, and I guess that. Uh, hits on something that I would say everyone should always keep in mind when they're thinking about taxes, incentives matter, yeah. incentives matter. So as we change the tax code, recognize people's behavior will not remain static. People are going to adjust their behavior. So that, that makes these issues even from, you know, a positive perspective of, you know, Hey, what are people actually going to do? Difficult to analyze. And then you well, throw all the normative issues of what's fair on top of that. Yeah. And it, it's really a lot. Well, that's, that, that's a great, great way to uh, wind up here. Well, thank you, Tim, for coming on and talking with us. And thank you all for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu business.